Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We saw last week Paul's speech in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And this week we'll see the reaction to that speech. The speech triggered great interest throughout the city, but it generated divided response. Some liked what they heard, others hated what they heard. And that's what the word does. It divides. But the other thing the word does is to conquer. So we'll see that essentially this breaks down into two points. Divide and conquer. Acts 13, starting at verse 42. When the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we see that your word divides and that your word conquers. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond rightly to your word this morning, to hear and to obey. We thank you for the proclamation of the Christ who had come into the world and offered salvation as the one in whom your faithfulness is summed up and finally expressed. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know Christ today, to submit to him to be a Christmas people who rejoice that your Son came and kept your promises to us. Free us from distraction. Help us to focus not on the circumstances of the service or on noises or thoughts of this week's plans or whatever come the devil shoves our way. Help us instead to focus on what your word says, to hear it and to believe it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the word comes to Pisidian Antioch. Paul preaches a doozy of a sermon, ending, as we saw last week, with a not particularly veiled threat. If you don't believe this, God will come and destroy you. And when the Jews, the service is over, and people are kind of crowding around Paul and Barnabas. This was not a sermon such as had been heard particularly often in this particular synagogue. The Jews come and crowd around. Many of the devout proselytes, that is the Gentiles, who are there but have not 
been fully converted to Judaism. They follow Paul and Barnabas, and they essentially say, we want more. So we see the word creating this interest. That's the first part of the response. The second part of the response is the opposition. Others uh, are filled with envy and blaspheme. The word divides. But Luke's final word on Pisidian Antioch is joy and the Holy Spirit. The reason that the word conquers is because of the superior joy of those in whom it dwells. Victory is not given to those who shout the loudest, those who are the best fear mongers, those who threaten the loudest or beat the others up with a big verbal stick. (coughs) Victory comes to the disciples because they're filled with joy The word divides, the word conquers, and the ones conquered by the word walk in joy. That's why we started with the greatest of all the Christmas hymns, Joy to the World. That's what the message of Christ is all about. Yes, it's a threat to the unbelievers. Yes, there is a message of judgment, and Paul didn't hold back on that. But the biggest message, the biggest takeaway is joy. Be glad that God kept his promise that he fulfilled what he said he would do in Jesus. So there's tremendous interest right off the bat. The Gentiles are begging, can you guys come back next week? Is there any way we could hear another sermon like that one? Jesus stood out because he taught with authority and not like the scribes. Any of you who have read the Talmud or the Mishnah know that there are passage after passage, page after page, volume after volume of Rabbi Hillel said, Rabbi Shammai said, the other rabbi came along and he said, and that's what a Jewish sermon typically was in those days and perhaps to this day. That's not what Paul's sermon was, if you noticed. It was nothing about Rabbi so-and-so. There were no two or three opinions on every last question. That's not how Paul preached. When Paul preaches, he says, this is it. This is God's word. Jesus came to save, and if you don't listen, you will perish just like the Babylonian invasion of 600 years ago. Paul preaches that, and the Gentiles say, this is juicy red meat. We love this stuff. Come back, please, Paul. In fact, one commentator said it might not even be the next Sabbath. It should maybe be translated before the next Sabbath. We want to hear more about this as soon as you're free, like maybe tomorrow, sometime during the week. Come tell us more, Paul. So there's this tremendous interest. And what do Paul and Barnabas say to those who are so interested? Pretty fascinating. Their message that Paul and Barnabas exhorted them to continue in the grace of God. They didn't say, well, buy my book. Read my letters. Paul doesn't say that. Nor does he say, well, get on my Bible reading plan. Here's some easy steps for you to follow as a baby Christian. He says, here's the message. The message is grace. Continue in the grace of God. I have to boil my sermon down to one thing that you need to do this week. It's to stick 
to grace. That's how Paul sums it up. Now that's probably, I would guess, not how any of you or I would sum up the sermon that Paul had just preached. But when they say, what's our takeaway? What can we do while we're waiting this long, long week till next Saturday when we can hear you? Paul says, stay in God's grace. That's the message that he applies. Obviously, the picture that Paul paints of the Judaism of his youth is of a religion of law. No question about that. Paul says that the way he was brought up, the pharisaical teachings that he was taught, were all about do better, be better. Meet the standard, or you're out. Do well, be well. Do the right thing. Touching the law, be blameless. Paul says, I met that standard. I passed that standard. But his message to these people is not meet the standards. Go do an intensive on the Ten Commandments. His message is God forgives you. Stick to that. Stay with the grace of God. And that's the message that we need to hear too. Not works of the law, but grace. We're getting to heaven because God forgives. Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem because of God's grace. Not because the Bethlehemites deserved it or because we deserve it, but because God wanted, out of the goodness of His heart, to send His Son. God's riches at Christ's expense, undeserved favor. That's what the coming of Jesus is. That's the meaning of Christmas. And that's what Paul and Barnabas said as they're leaving the synagogue. Stick to the grace of God. So there's interest. And I think it's also good for us not only to think about the grace of God, but also to remember that there are people who are interested in the Christian message. Most of us in our limited attempts at evangelism have found out that our neighbors really don't care. Or don't feel that they're lacking anything in their life and don't really want to hear particularly about Jesus or salvation or sin or forgiveness. And maybe we have loved ones like this where we've tried to say, you know, and they've said, why are you always on your dumb hobby horse? Why don't you talk about something interesting? But Luke is telling us there are places, there are times when people are interested. And actually most times and most places are times and places of great religious interest. Including Paul's day. Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. A lot of people in Pisidian Antioch were interested in this stuff. It had the capability of attracting more people than a sporting event or an arts event, a musician or a concert. People wanted to hear the Word of God. And we live in a time and place where we think, I don't even know if I'm particularly interested in the things of God, much less my neighbors, friends, and relatives. Luke is saying, don't give up. No, there are places where people are interested. <coughs> Contemporary China is one such place. When my sister lived there. There were 20 unbelievers at her church on a regular basis, like Sunday after Sunday, who were there because they were interested and wanted to know more about the Christian faith. 
So don't think that the world has totally lost interest in Christ forever and ever, and that's just how it's going to be. The word generates interest, but it also generates opposition. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Don't underestimate this sin of envy. Envy is sorrow at another's good. Envy is being mad that they have what you don't. I've told you this several times. The classic statement of envy is your roommate comes back and says, I got 100 on the test. And you say, I hate you. That is envy. And that's what happened to the mainstream of the synagogue here in Pisidian Antioch. We've been here for 200 years doing our regular Sabbath service, and we've attracted however many. You know, make it a big synagogue. 1,000, 1,200 people. Paul comes here one Sunday, and the entire city turns up. We hate you, Paul. We hate you. This envy, this sorrow at the gifts and graces that God had given to Paul, and therefore hatred of the message that he preached, turns up in the hearts of these Antiochian Jews. <coughs> Beware envy. It's a sin that destroys lots and lots of human lives. Right? Maybe he has a big church and a large salary, and you have a small church and a smaller salary. Maybe she has a husband and a baby, and you have neither. Maybe he has a Corvette, and you have a clunker. Our hearts can find all kinds of things to envy. And Luke says, don't do it. You will reject the word of God. You will bring the disaster that Habakkuk prophesied on yourself if you say, I hate you because you have something better than I have. So the word generates that divided response. There's interest and there's opposition. And Luke has shown us this over and over and over since chapter 2, where on the day of Pentecost, some say they're drunk, opposition. Others say, we're hearing the words of God in our own language. This is amazing. Let's go get baptized. There's opposition. There's interest. The Word creates both of those then and now. So it's a good hint to you that if the message you're preaching never generates any opposition... Probably not preaching the genuine word. <coughs> Paul and Barnabas respond. They grow bold as they meet this opposition. They're there in the synagogue, and the service goes from pretty interesting as Paul preaches a new message to incredibly awkward as the established synagogue leadership tries to tear him out of the pulpit, and they stand up and yell and scream and say, He's wrong! Don't listen to him. Not the kind of thing that you really want to happen at church, no matter what your theological stripe is. But this is happening here in the Pisidian Antioch Synagogue. And not me who's saying this, a Jewish guy that I've read, says the stereotype is totally true and that you can get Jewish people to argue about anything. Loud and long, beard, pulling beards and the whole nine yards. 
It's this history of the Jews that I have. I can show you the passage. Pretty interesting. But it certainly happened here in Pisidian Antioch, where it turns into a full-scale food fight riot as the elders of the synagogue are screaming at Paul, trying to get him out of the pulpit. Paul is trying to preach the gospel. Finally, apparently, Paul kind of surrenders, and as they're frog-marching him out, he says, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So he makes his little speech from the gallows here and says, You, my Jewish brothers and sisters, you don't want this. You're rejecting the word of God, to which they're saying, Yeah, we are rejecting it, and we're giving you the left foot of fellowship. Get out and don't come back. And Paul gives this theological reason. First, that the word of God had to be spoken to the Jews first. The Jews have and retain a certain priority in the plan of God. How do you specify that priority? Well, Luke does it over and over. He consistently says, like Paul, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Gentiles are plan B in a certain sense. The message is for Jews first. You can sell kosher hot dogs to Gentiles. But we're not who they were created for. You can sell matzo bread to Gentiles. But it wasn't invented for us. And that seems to be what he's saying. God created this whole thing first and foremost for the Jewish people. You were the original ones in God's plan. But you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now when Paul uses that word worthy, he's not saying certain people are worthy of eternal life. And God looks at them and says, yeah, you deserve salvation and so do you and you're going to come to heaven. He's saying you can't deserve it. You can't deserve to go to heaven. But you can deserve not to go there. You can deserve to be excluded from heaven. As we saw in Sunday school this morning. Outside are the unclean, the abominable, the liars. Paul says, essentially, that's what you are. You don't want the way of salvation. You reject the Lord Jesus, and therefore you reject salvation. The two go together. You can't have salvation without Christ. And so if you reject Christ and you reject me, the messenger of Christ, then there's no salvation for you. The message was for you. It was for you first. You had the right of first refusal on this and you apparently exercised it and said, no, I don't want that Messiah. So we're going to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us and Paul and Barnabas break out with Isaiah 49 I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. We read that in Isaiah 49 a few minutes ago. God's commission to his suffering servant, Christ, the light of the world. God sets him as a light to the nations. And here in verse 47, the you is singular. The Lord has commanded us, I have set you singular to be a light to the Gentiles. What are Paul and Barnabas saying? That the command to Christ, 
The singular you is a command to them. We're servants of Christ. He's the light of the world. We too are the light of the world. So, Jesus says this, of course, in the Gospels. He says, I am the light of the world. We saw that in our John 8 passage, our confession of sin, assurance of pardon. But he also says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. He's the sun, we're the moon. He's the original light, we're, we reflect the light. Paul and Barnabas are a light to the Gentiles in the sense that they pass on, they reflect the light of Christ to the Gentiles. So just as Isaiah 49 says it's too easy to just save the Jews, it was too light to only save them, I've set you for a light to the Gentiles so my salvation can go to the ends of the earth. So Paul and Barnabas repeat that and say that's our task too. Christ is not just for Jews, he's for Gentiles too. He's a light to the Gentiles and so our primary mission from now on is going to be to the Gentiles. Now it's, it's a little interesting in one sense that they announce this big turn to the Gentiles because where do they go next? Well, they go down the road to Iconium, chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. We're going to Gentiles. Our next stop is another synagogue. And Paul continues to go to synagogues first through the rest of the book of Acts. Now this turn to the Gentiles is not a turn to the Gentiles in the sense that the message is no longer going to be proclaimed to Jews. It continues to be for the Jew first. But it is a turn to the Gentiles in the sense that Paul and Barnabas are going to be actively engaged in recruiting Gentiles as well as Jews. They'll go to the synagogue, but they'll also go elsewhere. And we'll see Paul teaching in secular venues like the school of Tyrannus later on in the book. But just as Christ is a light to the Jews and to the Gentiles, so Paul and Barnabas are trying to be both as well. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. I am become all things to all men that I might save some. 1 Corinthians 9. So, you can think about it this way. How many of the books of the New Testament are written specifically to a Jewish audience? Hebrews, James, possibly 1 Peter, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. You can add in 1 and 2 Timothy. Timothy was a Jew. So that's 5 out of 27. The rest of the books clearly have a primarily Gentile audience in mind, or even like Luke and Acts, are addressed to a Gentile reader. And today, in the church, most churches, most missionary agencies, most parachurch groups are Gentile-led, and Gentile focused. Right, so we can just look at our prayer list today. We're praying for Rock of Israel Presbyterian Church, a church that has an outreach specifically to Jewish people in inner city Philadelphia. 
And that's one of the ministries on here. What are the rest? Well, we have the U.S. Army. We have Calvary Community Church. We have Campbell County Extension. We have Rocky Mountain Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. We have a bunch of ministries that are Gentile-led and Gentile-focused. And that's, that's normal to us. And turn to the Gentiles is real, but it is not exclusive. There's still ministry to Jews that should be ongoing within the church. So Paul and Barnabas announce that they are going to be light of the world like Jesus, reflecting his light. And the Gentiles rejoice. Doesn't say how the Jews felt about it, whether they were glad to be rid of Paul or what. But the Gentiles heard, they're here for us. That was not the message that the synagogue preached. The Gentiles who were regulars at the synagogue understood this is a Jewish institution for Jewish people. If you want to fully belong, you have to become a Jew. Paul and Barnabas come in and say, Jesus is a Messiah for Jews and Gentiles alike, and you don't have to become a Jew to serve Him. And so the Gentiles are filled with joy and they glorify the word of the Lord. And Luke states that as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. That's how Paul and Barnabas had the strength to keep going to synagogues and keep preaching the gospel after they had been threatened and abused so many times. They knew that God had the ones He had chosen and that He was going to save them and that He was going to save them through the message that the missionary team preached. And so they weren't downcast or disheartened. They didn't say, oh, why didn't we put it differently? Oh, those Jews didn't like it. Maybe if I had said it another way. Paul is the ultimate insider. He knows how to speak the Jewish lingo. He knew how to speak to his own people. And he isn't disheartened or let down that a lot of them didn't believe. He recognizes that God has the ones he's going to save and that those are the ones he saved. And that brings great joy. So the word of the Lord is spread throughout the whole region. It goes from the city out into the surrounding countryside. But the opposition continues. The Jews stirred up the prominent women and the chief men of the city. Kind of an interesting statement there. That if you really want the city officials to act, get the women involved. Don't mess around with the men. Go to a male city official and say, there's this annoying preacher in town. And he says, so? Not my problem. You go to his wife and say, there's this annoying preacher in town. And she says, you poor thing. Let me get my husband on this. Well, they stirred up the women. They stirred up the men. They kicked Paul and Barnabas out of the entire region. Not only are you not welcome in Antioch, you're not welcome in Pisidia. Get out. The FBI puts out those posters, so-and-so is wanted. Or you can joke that somebody is wanted in 25 states. It's sometimes more effective to joke that somebody is not wanted in 
48 states and he hasn't visited the other two, that's Paul and Barnabas. They're not wanted, at least by a certain contingent, the envious Jewish people. So they're expelled. That doesn't make them downhearted. They understand that that's part of God's plan. But they do curse that town. They shook the dust off their feet, just as Jesus said to do against a place that wouldn't hear the word of God. My uncle was, still is, at the age of 98, more or less, a traveling evangelist. And one of the stories he tells is of going to the town of Dillon, Colorado in the 1940s and trying to hold an evangelistic series of meetings there. He couldn't get anybody to come. There was one devout old woman in town and she would come and they would pray together and nobody else would come. So he stayed for a week or two and couldn't get a single person to listen to the message. And when he left, he shook the dust off his feet and gave that missionary's curse to the town of Dillon. A few years later, the Denver Water Board built a reservoir right on top of Dillon. Drowned that whole town. There is still a town of Dillon that's been moved up the hill. It's a different town. Now, Luke doesn't include anything dramatic like that happening to Pisidian Antioch. But the message is clear. God's judgment awaits a place that won't hear the word of God. That's exactly what Paul preached in his sermon. Jerusalem wouldn't hear the word of God in the days of Habakkuk. It was destroyed. Pisidian Antioch wouldn't hear the word of God in the days of Paul and Barnabas. It doesn't become a flourishing center of the faith. the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's the note that he ends on. Yes, there's a divided response. Yes, there's opposition. But there's also, and primarily, joy. And this is the face, not only that we turn to the world, but this is who our innermost self should be. Not people who are living in fear, Not people who are living in outrage. I can't believe those devout women and leading men in the city kicked out Paul. What kind of a city is this anyway? Why do we have such terrible government around here? It doesn't say the disciples were filled with political zeal to get a new city council. The disciples were filled with joy. They had something better than political peace. They had something better than fitting in and getting along in their city. They had Christ. And that's why they were filled with joy, because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So that's the message for Christmas. The Christmas spirit is, don't be a whiner, don't be a complainer, don't be envious, Continue in the grace of God. Know that God has forgiven you and be filled with the Spirit who is the Spirit of joy. Something tells me that there will be a lot of joyless Christmases for some of our fellow Americans this week. That there are a lot of people who might have all kinds of nice stuff under the tree and a lot of anger and rage at each other in their hearts. 
Don't be that. Those who hear the word of God, those who have seen Christ as the light of the world, their hearts are filled with joy. Let's pray. Father, please help us to continue in your grace that we might be joyful Christians. We pray that we would be able to act as many lights of the world, shining the light of Christ wherever we go this week, at whatever holiday gatherings and events you call us to, whatever relatives and friends we see. Father, we pray that our hearts would be merry as we're filled with the joy of the Lord which is our strength and which was Paul and Barnabas' strength. Be with us now, we pray. Help us as we continue to worship you to be filled with joy in the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.